So this is a little off of the lectionary because remember we were going to take these period, these few weeks here in Lent, and we were going to talk about all these things we said we were going to do in Ash Wednesday, and we were going to spend each week. And it's strange because after a certain point, Lent says you should do these certain things, Ash Wednesday says those, and then the readings start to go off where it's like, how do you connect those? So for the next two weeks, we're going to focus on these particular tasks, and this week we're going to talk about penitence. Now, every week so far, if you've been here, starting in Ash Wednesday, you've heard this beautiful gospel setting of Psalm 51 by Dr. Margaret DeRoe. Now, this was the first song that she composed way back in 1970. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. DeRoe has this wonderful, wonderful career, has done amazing work doing gospel, gospel music. And every year for Ash Wednesday, we hear Psalm 51. It is a corner piece of the service. And in this chorus, we hear these words. Give me a clean heart so I may serve thee. Lord, fix my heart so that I may be used by thee. For I'm not worthy of all these blessings. Give me a clean heart, Lord, and I'll follow thee. And this sentiment flows throughout all of Lent. Again, we don't walk down this period looking at our feet, feeling bad about ourselves, waiting for Jesus to die and continue to hope that he's resurrected. And nor do we make this 40 days a period of performances that we stand up and say, look at what we've given up or look at how holy we are. No, instead we are trying to prepare ourselves during a period of wilderness time to continue to live faithfully afterwards. And Darrow paraphrases Psalm 51 and connects a clean heart with service in God's holy commonwealth. These two things are apparently linked together. And on Ash Wednesday, I think this is mentioned through this word penitence. Now, I want to discuss real quick the difference between penitence and repentance, because these are words we use on a regular basis. And it seems like at one time, as I was looking through the history of these words, it seems like they meant something different. Penitence seemed to be a more transactional part of holy living. You imagine if you were going to do penitence, you might say certain prayers, you might act in a certain way, you might go out and do uh, sort of uh, uh, holy community service, right? That was penitence. But repentance was meant to be something more transformational, as if it was a heart change. Now, over time it seems like these words have steadily started to merge together. So that penitence and repentance really aren't that terribly different. And I would argue that both of them, especially in the context of Lent, lead back to the root word that we discussed back in April, this word metanoia. It's a Greek word that has two movements to it. An acknowledgement of past brokenness, and an exposure of the heart to God and to change. That if we are repenting, if we are performing the act of metanoia, we recognize that the direction we're going might not be the best one, and so we make a turn, a change of mind, and we do something different. Now, truth is, it's not always easy to see our brokenness. It's not always easy 
to see the things we might need to be penitent for, even if it's really clearly laid out for us. I mean, for goodness sakes, look at David today. Now, listen, David, like, there are psalms that we can accurately say David wrote in the psalms. Like, historically makes a lot of sense. This dude loves God. Is very serious about God. Man after God's own heart. But look at what happens. It's a tale as old as time. We see how power and authority can blind us from our own sin and brokenness. And we're only taking a little bit of this story today, but if we stretched out the whole story of David and Bathsheba, we see at the beginning that David covets Bathsheba, even though she's married, sees her uh, as he's like lounging up up on the roof or whatever, and says, I, uh, I'm going to take uh, Bathsheba. They're intimate. It turns out that uh, David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba's pregnant, now, here would be the thing, right? That, that's the first surface thing, right? David commits adultery and now is going to have a child. But David doesn't just stop there. David then starts to try to hide his adultery through bringing, you know, through deception and inviting Uriah back home. And through some euphemistic language, invites him because he's been at the war front for so long to go back and, and have intimate relations with his wife. You know, hoping to sort of hide the fact that It's not David's baby, but Uriah's baby. And then, when that doesn't work, because Uriah is so committed as a soldier and says, I am not going to go home to see my wife. I'm going to stay right here at the palace. I am so committed to this. Well, he then, David then commits an act of murder through state-sanctioned actions, right? He says, hey, can you send Uriah to the front of the front line? And sure enough, Uriah dies on the battlefield as a hero. Now, from the outside, if we didn't have the benefit of the 40,000-foot view of the narrator, we might not have an easy time to see that anything was wrong. This is a king making kingly decisions. This, of course, reminds me a lot of Reinhold Niebuhr talking about moral man and moral society, that it seems like the larger the group gets and the more power you have, the less easy it is to actually do the right thing or the moral thing. And even in this story, it seems like David is doing all sorts of mental gymnastics in order to justify what he did so that he doesn't find himself in the wrong. It finally took a trusted community, and in this case, Nathan, who was one of David's very closest and best friends, to speak truth into David and to help him recognize he has done a grievous series of actions. It took a story about a lamb in order for David to get it. And without doubt, the consequences here are very severe. The whole narrative in this story ends with the child, the first child between David and Bathsheba dying seven days after birth. We do get the benefit of seeing that the second child is Solomon, heir to the throne. Now for a while, I I, I contemplated not digging into this part because honestly, to have to wrestle with what does it mean God 
inviting a child to die is a lot of complicated stuff to have to work through, and not enough time can be spent to it on a sermon today. It's like three or four sermons that we've got to work through. But I do think it's important, and for now, I think it's worth noting that in the story, David does attempt to hide this child through a lot of deception and trying to get Uriah to be with Bathsheba. So, and um, Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his interpretation commentary, trying to pawn off the child to Uriah. So it seems like David didn't really value this child anymore. More seemed like an inconvenience that was a consequence of his decision-making. And truly, the complexities of consequence often stop us from penitence and repentance. In other words, our broken nature breaks nature. And the work at repair sometimes is too much to bear. If we all wanted to sit around and tell stories about different mistakes we've made in the past, I'm sure there are some that perhaps we wanted to make right, but we could not because the consequences were too much to bear. So not only at times do we avoid our own metanoia unless within community, but then we can also project that onto others, especially when they're exposed. Because if I've got something in me that I'm not quite ready I haven't had my Nathan and David moment in. Well, maybe I bury it down a little lower and then I project it on to somebody else. Interestingly enough, in our gospel passage, we see something similar to this. This gospel passage actually only comes up semi-regularly in the lectionary, depending on when Easter falls and when Trinity Sunday falls. Sometimes we get this passage and sometimes we don't. I think the last time this one was in the lectionary was 2016. And we hear echoes of this story elsewhere in the gospel. And there's some debate among scholars whether this story that we see today in Luke is the same one that we see in Mark and Matthew and John, or whether this is a completely different story. I don't think it actually changes the context that we're approaching it with today. But if you remember other times when you hear breaking an alabaster jar or anointing Jesus' feet, you're not going crazy Every single gospel has a story similar to this. But here, we have a woman who heard about Jesus' dinner and comes to see him. And she is known both euphemistically and also judgmentally as a prostitute. This doesn't seem to be very hidden. And the Pharisee comments to himself in equally parts familiar and grotesque both downplaying Jesus and denigrating the woman. And it's interesting, as a character, this Pharisee acts nearly as the polar opposite to, from Nathan to David. Oh man, listen, if, if this Jesus was really worth his salt, he would not be near this woman. Because you know what she does. So clearly Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And indeed, in her vulnerability in this moment, she is exposed. And the religious leaders of the day self-righteously mock her for it. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
But Jesus responds in a fascinating way. First, he acknowledges the brokenness of everybody and that everyone is forgiven. No one is without a debt, even from the smallest to the largest. Everyone had a debt, no matter their size. Those with the greater debt felt its lifting even more, according to Jesus. And in acknowledging both of the debts, the small one and the large one, he sets up a contrast. The woman is exposed. Everybody knows who she is. And she offers herself to Jesus fully without inhibition. Tears, hair, ointment, an alabaster jar indicating that this is not something cheap. Nothing that happens in this moment is cheap. And she is deeply exposed and offers herself to Jesus fully. Her actions speak out loud, give me a clean heart so that I may serve thee. And meanwhile, it seems Simon the Pharisee's lived a pretty good life. He hadn't really done much. Get him in trouble, arguing that there is vulnerability and the openness to repair. It gives each of us a wellspring of love to work from. And it's fascinating to me that in both cases, the lifting, the forgiving, what seems to be in that more vulnerable moment, the woman at Jesus' feet feels that love more deeply than Simon apparently does. And so if we are not able or willing to offer ourselves to Jesus in our brokenness, our imperfection, to be vulnerable in these penitent moments, well, perhaps what we are doing is cutting ourselves off from deeper love simply because we are fearful of the consequences of consequences. And yet the action here in this moment, this vulnerable transparent woman that offers the best that she has is simply to go in peace because she is forgiven and she is loved. Now, while I wish it was always the case, dear friends, most of our penitential moments will fall somewhere in between the woman and David. There are things that we all carry in our hearts that are broken However, there does seem to be one thing that consistently rings true. And it's that Jesus meets our hearts and offers love in the midst of that vulnerability. When we call out in Lent every single week, give me a clean heart, we will always hear the affirmative response from Jesus, yes, I will. With an equal measure and perhaps far more than even you are aware of, dear child. For when you offer yourself your brokenness, every single bit of your fallen nature, I will find you, I will love you. As we offer more of ourselves, we desire more, Jesus responds in equal measure. Penitence is not meant to be shameful, dear friends. Penitence is a means in which we receive Christ's love. We are forgiven. We go in peace. 
It's why, again, every week we say these confessions and immediately afterwards the waters of baptism are poured and you hear that you are loved and you are forgiven. And you know what you do afterwards? You shake hands and you pass peace. Well, hopefully it's passing peace and not just good to see you. But that happens too. Because the wellspring of the love that we receive every single Sunday extends beyond us so that we can say to one another the peace of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, the hope of Jesus Christ, the redemption of Jesus Christ, everything that Jesus Christ is, I can offer to you as well. So I invite you in this Lenten time as we self-examine and perhaps provide ourselves some penitence to not be afraid. But like the woman with the alabaster jar, break ourselves open to our Savior. Shout quietly or loudly, Jesus, give me a clean heart so that I may serve thee. What love, what compassion awaits each of us if we simply offer ourselves. Thanks be to God.